Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. Our scripture this morning comes from 2 Corinthians 1, 12 through 22. And if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, with integrity and godly sincerity. We have done so, relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that, as you have understood in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us, just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, I wanted to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I fickle when I intended to do this or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes, and no, no? But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Morning, friends. See you. You know, about 20 years ago, uh, my family and I, we had the great opportunity to live in Scotland for a while. And in our third year there, it was especially neat because we were able to live on a working sheep farm. So we lived in the manor house that a friend of ours owned, and then there was a real live Scottish shepherd who lived there with his dogs working the sheep. If you ever seen the old movie Babe, it was like that with the dogs working the sheep and all this. It was, it was really neat. We got to see him do all this. Now, while all that sounds wonderful and amazing, it'd be easy to sort of romanticize that, it's easy for us to forget that actually shepherding is not, shepherding sheep particularly, is not easy. Because sheep, as you probably know, are wayward, they're dumb, they take a lot of work. I mean, you may, you may again look at cute pictures of sheep or you may enjoy your gyro from Ida Pita, but actually breeding and raising sheep is incredibly laborious and potential, has a lot of potential for failure. Now, one of my all-time favorite YouTube videos, don't look it up right now during the sermon, please, but afterwards, you can look it up, is maybe you've seen it of this, uh, this sheep that has got itself head stuck into this very long or very deep trench, and the shepherd boy pulls him out by his leg and finally gets him out, and the sheep is very happy, and he jumps four or five steps and then head first right back into the thing. And I always think that's such a great picture of sheep and what it would be like to be a shepherd, both hilarious and pathetic. Now... <laughs> As you know, shepherding is actually a very common theme throughout the Bible. We meet a lot of shepherds, including King David himself, who was a shepherd. And then the son of David, Jesus himself, calls himself the good shepherd. 
The Apostle Peter says that leaders in the church are shepherds with, with Jesus Christ as the chief shepherd, and that's all good. But we often forget, I think, the other side of that equation. Church leaders are called shepherds because we Christians are sheep. We are fickle, we are often foolish, we're often easily led astray. More often than not, we lack wisdom and we need someone to help us direct our lives in good ways. It's always good to remember that cats, dogs, lions, elephants, they don't need shepherds, right? Sheep do, it's right in the name, sheep herder. That's what a shepherd is and that's who we are. Now, you may still be wondering, what does that have to do with our text for today? Well, we've just begun a new series for this summer going through the wonderful, really powerful and really paradoxical book that we call Second Corinthians. And it's a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul who was one of the most influential shepherds of the early church, it's written to a, a fledgling, struggling church that really, I think, manifests some of the worst examples of us being sheep. And Paul wrote quite a few letters that make up Holy Scripture, and by all accounts, this one, 2 Corinthians, is his most personal and his most intense. It's really a letter being written out of a of a, of a broken heart and a heart wrenched with anxiety, a heart full of compassion, by a hardworking shepherd to this particularly wayward and foolish and fickle and even angry sheep, sheep that have actually turned against him. And last week, Pastor Kevin did a great job of introducing this, not so much the historical information, but talking about how Paul starts his letter by talking about his suffering and God's comfort. And this morning, we're gonna continue on with what Lindsay read for us here and try to understand a little bit more of what's going on uh, in Corinth in this letter. And so to understand that, even though we don't do this a lot in sermons, I think it's important for us to understand a little bit more of the historical situation than we typically talk about because of how intense this letter actually is. So imagine with me someone in your life that you have invested in, that you've loved, that you've poured yourself out for, that you've sacrificed time and money for, maybe your own children if you have children, maybe a neighbor, maybe a friend, maybe a spouse, maybe someone who is in poverty or suffering or some other need. Imagine that and you've poured yourself out and then they turn against you. Something happens and instead of seeing you for all the good you've done and all the ways you've tried to help now, they see everything you do with suspicion and criticism and skepticism. And then maybe other people come into those, that person's life and, and they start casting further doubts on you and your motives. And then you have a, a whole group of people who you've tried to love and serve who've turned against you. And, and certainly you'd probably be the first to admit you haven't been perfect. There were probably some missteps you made. Probably there were just unfortunate misunderstandings that happened that caused this. But even so, these people that you've served, this person you've served and loved have now turned against you. And you know, you know how this works, because we all do it as well, right? That for something happens in our minds, once you get a bad attitude towards somebody, once you sort of view them in a certain way, no matter what they do, it's super easy to interpret everything with ill motives and skepticism and cynicism and suspicion. Doesn't matter what they do, because those lenses come over our eyes and then everything gets interpreted in that way. And that, Friends, when you're on the other side of that, 
is a very deep and sharp pain. It's a, it's a kind of heartbreak that you maybe feel like time even could never mend. And maybe for some of you today, you don't even have to imagine that scenario. Maybe that's the scenario you're in with, a, with an adult child or a friend. So how do you respond? I mean, what happens in you and how do you respond when that happens? Well, I think for many of us, it'd be anger and feeling hurt and sadness. Maybe some of us go nuclear on it. Maybe some of us start a kind of slander campaign that we call prayer requests. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's escape. I know what I do when I'm in like emotional distress. I just like sleep. <laughs> I just knock out a lot of times. Or in the theater, the false theater calling, starring Jonathan Pennington, where I am this amazing person, I play through all these scenarios where I say the perfect retort to every situation that everybody says, oh, you're right, you were so right. And this, this sort of, I, I play this over my mind, these perfect responses I might have had when I'm hurt. Well, this is the Apostle Paul's situation times 10 with this church, these people, these fellow Christians in the city of Corinth. He had lived with them. He had served them as a pastor and a teacher and a friend without pay. He had prayed for them constantly. He had suffered persecution, physical and spiritual anxiety on their behalf so that he might serve them. And now they have completely turned against him. The church and these people that he had served, these people that had been his friends that he'd lived with, they're now understanding him as weak and untrustworthy and unimportant, not worth listening to, in fact, inferior to them in every way. They've really completely disregarded him and discredited him and really discarded him, the guy that led them to Christ. So how does Paul respond? How does Paul respond to this kind of pain and rejection? Well, what he did is he wrote them several letters, very personal letters and very instructive and theological letters. From what we can reconstruct, he wrote them four letters, actually, and in the kind of academic study of the New Testament, we call these Corinthians A, B, C, and D, just kind of keep track of them. We only have two of these letters, and two of these letters we understand are you know, part of the canon of Holy Scripture. They are inspired words from God. For whatever reason, we don't have the fir first and third letters, A and C. That's okay. But we do have these other two letters that we call first and second Corinthians, which would really be the second and fourth letters. And from what we can construct about what happened, here's what seems to have been the situation that led to these letters. Around the years A.D., 49 to 51, Paul actually lived in Corinth. He ministered to these people for about 18 months. Then he left after that and was traveling all over the Mediterranean. And it's during that time from around 52 to 57 that he wrote um, these letters to them while he's preaching and living in Ephesus and other places. And during, during this time, he first wrote, or the, the second letter he wrote to them was what we call again, 1 Corinthians. And he needed to address a bunch of issues in this, this church of sheep that they were suing each other, there were lawsuits, there were conflicts, that when they took the Lord's Supper together, they were kind of um, being unequal in how they treated the rich versus the poor probably. And there were lots of problems that they had sort of way overdone it with issues related to spiritual gifts. So he wrote this letter to them and it seems like they kind of received it, but probably some people did and some people weren't too happy with it. Now sometime after this, some false Christian, taking the name of Christian, but some false leaders came into Corinth and they started bad-mouthing Paul. 
And they started saying, he's weak, he's not trustworthy, see? And they, they really started to, to poison the well with their understanding of who Paul was. So then Paul writes them, he hears about this, and he writes them this, this other letter we don't have that is often referred to as the, the painful or severe letter, where he, sounds like he was pretty strong and pretty clear about their, the wrong things they were believing and trying to explain and, and really challenge them on a lot of things. And then you can imagine what happened. For the next several months, as he was waiting to hear back, because he sent it by one of his disciples, Titus, he was waiting to hear back. He was full of anxiety. What, how are they going to respond? Is this going to be the end of our relationship, or are they going to turn back to me? Finally, Titus arrives back with the report that Paul's letter was pretty well received. Not everybody, but it seems like the majority of the people accepted him. And part of what had happened in there that was so painful is that he had made a visit to them in between. And when he was there, in the midst of them gathering together, he was completely humiliated. Some people had stood up and, and accused him of wrongdoing and he left in shame. It'd be like if during this sermon, don't get any ideas, some, some people stood up and started saying negative things and then everybody said, yeah, you're right. I mean, it would be a very shameful and humiliating thing. So 2 Corinthians is this letter that he's written after all this has happened, he's finally heard the good report that they've received his strong letter toward them. And he's writing this letter to kind of clarify some things, explain himself and prepare for him to finally come visit them because things have gotten up and upside down with them. So this is where it picks up in 112. Let me read this for you again. <clears throat> so he says, now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you with integrity and godly sincerity. We've done so relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand, and I hope that, as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, I wanted to visit you first that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. So this is... This is him sort of explaining his travel arrangements to them and how they didn't quite work out. And it's got some kind of weird language. That word boast is used a bunch of times. And this turns out to be actually a word he's gonna use a lot in 2 Corinthians. So we're gonna bump into it in future sermons as well. But for now, I can just say that it's a weird word because in English, the word boast is very negative. Like if someone's boastful or boasts, that's negative. But the word Paul uses here isn't always negative. It really just means like what you're publicly relying on, what you're sort of, claiming to be the basis of your, of your stance or something. So it could be positive or it could be negative. And I think Paul probably has in mind that same kind of use of it from the book of Jeremiah in the Old Testament that says, let not the wise boast of their wisdom or the strong boast of their strength or rich boast of their riches, but the one who boasts, boasts about this, that they have understood, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. You see, what's happened is Paul's in this really delicate situation because he wants to, he needs to kind of defend himself a little bit to explain why his travel plans changed and why he hasn't, he didn't make it there when he thought he was going to, but he doesn't want to be defensive about it. He has to kind of assert to them he does have some authority over them as an apostle and as their father in Christ in that way, but he doesn't want to be overbearing or, or rude to them. He needs, to, he needs them to understand that he has sacrificed to, to, to be with them, but he doesn't want to sort of overly burden them with guilt either. So he's in a really delicate situation. So what he does, he says, 
you know, my boast, my confidence is not in anything other than that as far as I can tell, I have done nothing but try to love you with godly sincerity and with a clear conscience. And he's saying, I'm, I wasn't being fickle, I wasn't being indecisive in the change of my travel plans. As far as I know, I am just, my heart towards you is open and I'm trying to plead with you to see me that way. And so that's what he goes on to explain in verse 17. He says, was I fickle when I intended to do this or do I make plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes, and no, no? No, he says, he wasn't being fickle. He didn't make it there when he thought he was going to because of circumstances. He almost died that he talks about earlier in chapter one, but his heart towards them is good. Okay, so that's, that's that historical situation that seems to be underneath these verses that we read there. But I'm not telling you this because this is a, a history lesson or a New Testament you know, class at a seminary or something. I'm telling you this because I think to under, when we understand that, that helps us understand what Paul's about to say and what God is saying. You see, whenever we open the Bible to these letters from the New Testament, which we will be you know, for this summer and other times as well, it's important to understand that what's going on there in these texts of Holy Scripture that we believe are inspired from God is that there's like two levels of things going on. There's the historical situation, which is real life, real people doing things. But then there's always something deeper going on as well, which is God himself speaking to us. So as Paul himself says in another letter, he says all scripture, which we would understand to include all the books of the New Testament as well, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What this means, friends, is that even though we're reading this letter that came from a real life, real, uh, real people situation, at the same time, God is speaking at a deeper and higher level directly to us, us here in Louisville, Kentucky in 2022, that we might hear from God and be instructed. So that's the question then. So what's the theological point? What is God actually saying? Well, Paul himself makes a theological turn right in these next verses. Look with me at verse 18. He just emphasized to them that he wasn't being unfaithful in his plans. And then he says this in verse 18. But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ, and so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Okay, so what is Paul saying by this? Well, this is a classic example of what I affectionately call when I study Paul's letters, if you give a Paul a cookie, all right? If, if you remember the classic children's story, if you give a mouse a cookie, the whole idea is if you give a mouse a cookie, then he's gonna ask for a glass of milk, and if you give him a glass of milk, then he's gonna ask for a napkin or whatever it is, in the same way. Well, Paul, I think you often when you're reading Paul, you see that this is what happens as well, because he is such a passionate, fertile-minded, Jesus-loving teacher that often when he says one thing, 
you could just see it. You could see the synapses firing. He thinks of something else, and then he thinks of something else, and he wants to say that. It's like a good teacher does this. I mean, I, I often find myself, maybe it's just scatterbrain, but I'll be teaching in class, then I'll think, oh, and I want to say this, one, and then all of a sudden, no, I'm way over here on a point, and I have to stop and say, what was I talking about? <laughs> right? And I think you see that in a lot of Paul's letters as well. He's just, he's got a lot uh, that he's wanting to say to us out of love and passion, and he sometimes starts following this trail that seems out of nowhere, and that's what's happening here, I think. Paul goes from talking about the fact that he has been faithful, not fickle in his speech toward them, that his words were always a sincere yes, not a yes and no. And then like a great jazz musician, Paul just starts to riff on the truth about Jesus. He says, our words to you were not yes and no. The message we preached to you about Jesus was not yes and no, but actually Jesus himself is yes and amen in every way. What does that mean? That's what he's saying in verse 20. Well, the story of the Bible from the beginning is full of promises from God to us that he will give us life and hope and meaningfulness and purpose and freedom. And Paul is now saying all of that, everything we see in the Bible, everything we long for as humans, when you look, in your, look inside and you're honest with yourself, all that you long for has been brought to completion in Jesus. Genesis 3.15, right after the fall of Adam and Eve, God promises them that a descendant will come who will crush the head of Satan and deliver them and forgive them and defeat death. This is yes and amen in Jesus. In Genesis 12, God promises to Abraham and Sarah who are barren and have no children of their, their old age that someday God will bless them with more descendants than can be counted. And the New Testament understands that that is now the case. And all of you who are Christians today are children of Abraham and Sarah. That promise is yes and amen in Jesus. God promises to Moses that he will send a prophet who will be like Moses and even better, who will teach and guide God's people. That is yes and amen in Jesus. God promised to David that he would always have a descendant, a son who would rule over the world as a good king. This is yes and amen in Jesus. God promised that he would never leave or forsake us. This is yes and amen in Jesus. God promised that he would satisfy our lives, even in the midst of suffering with good things and fill us with more than the world's fleeting pleasures can offer, this is yes and amen in Jesus. God promises that if we seek him, we will find him. This is yes and amen in Jesus. God promises that he will make a new covenant relationship between God and humanity where he himself will write his law and his will in our hearts and enable us to fulfill it. This is yes and amen in Jesus. God promises that he will remove our sins as far as the east is from the west. And that even though our sins and our guilt and our shame are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. That is yes and amen in Jesus. God promises that we who are not a people, who have no identity in the world, will now be the people of God, children of God himself, priests of God to bless all the world. This is yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And God promises that even when we suffer loss and heartache, that he will restore the years the locusts have destroyed and work all things for our good. That is yes and amen in Jesus. We need an organ up here, come on, all right? 
And if this isn't enough, Paul takes this to the next level with one more beautiful thing to say. It's there in verse 21 and 22. Let me read this for you again. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. He set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So after all this idea that Jesus is the yes and amen to all that God has done, he drives home his God-centered point to show us clearly how wonderful and loving and powerful and marvelous God is toward us. It is God himself who makes us stand. It is God himself who fulfills all those promises, no matter what trials and sufferings and doubts and wounds we've experienced. And he's saying that God's heart toward us is favor and faithfulness, no matter how fickle we are. And the evidence of this are these two images he gives us. He says first that God has stamped his own identity on us, like a a seal of ownership. And I think the clearest analogy as I was thinking about this would be like a deeply personal and meaningful tattoo. Maybe you took like this awesome trip with your best friends. It was like epic and you all got a tattoo together. Or maybe your family all got like a tattoo together that has some aspect that's all connected. Or maybe the love of your life, who you, I hope you ended up with if you got a tattoo of, of that person on it, right? In other words, what he's saying is God's love for us is not like a jacket or a cardigan that might, we might take off. It's like a tattoo, He has stamped himself onto us. We are now his children and that identity is pressed into who we are. That's God's initiative toward us. He does it and it's his attitude towards us. It's his love for us. So we can have all confidence, he's saying, and security that not only are the promises of God yes and amen in Christ, they are yes and amen for us because he has stamped his own identity on us. And then the second image he gives us, he says that God has put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit. A deposit. It's like, let's say you're buying a car or a house or maybe putting down a deposit for a honeymoon or to start a new school program. A deposit is the beginning of a relationship, a guarantee that more is to come. Maybe the best analogy would be, it'd be like if you won a $100 million lottery this afternoon, And then next week, you got a $250,000 right now uh, deposit on it. And that would be amazing. But what really matters is the guarantee that the other 99,750,000 is coming your way and that that, that's really going to change your life. And you can plan on it. You can count on it. You can begin to live differently as a result because that deposit has been made. What Paul is saying is that if you're a Christian today, you actually, God has put his own breath, his own spirit as a deposit into who you are, transforming you to be more and different than you've been up to that point so that you might actually be transformed to be more like God, to be a person of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. God's own breath now in you as a deposit that he is at work until the day that Christ returns. That is good news. So thank you, God. Thank you, Paul, for following this cookie trail (laughs) because I can't imagine any more powerful and beautiful things to say than to learn that God is yes and amen for us in Christ and that he has 
tattooed himself on us and given us this deposit of the Spirit. And so putting this all together, what can we say? Well, I've entitled the sermon Human Fickleness and God's Faithfulness because when I think when we put this historical situation together with these theological truths, we see something profound that can really mark our lives. You see, the Corinthian church accused Paul of being fickle, and yet in doing so, they were showing their own fickleness, their own foolishness. And that's true of us as well. We all struggle to sustain anything good in our lives. We get bad attitudes. We give up on good intentions. We turn against friends. We get hurt and then we hurt back. And it's really, I was thinking about this, it's not even, you know, this is the, we are sheep and the waywardness, but we're really like sheep that have howitzers strapped on, the, on our backs that are shooting other people too. We're not just wayward, we're wayward and we're hurtful. We're fickle and we're faithless. But the contrast with God could not be greater and more beautiful that God is faithful, God is trustworthy, God is reliable, he's kind, he's loving. And despite our fickleness, despite our faithfulness, faithlessness, sorry, even in the midst of it, God is faithful and favorable to us. He, he tattoos himself upon us and seals us with his Holy Spirit. And, I, and I'd like to sum it up this way for you, and this is what I really want you to take away. That God's favor and faithfulness is bigger than our failure and fickleness. Do you believe that? God's favor toward us, his faithfulness towards us is bigger than our failures, the ones you're aware of or unaware of today, and our fickleness. Friends, today, if you are, whether you are a Christian or not today, you need to know that God's favor and faithfulness, his attitude towards you is actually bigger than all your failures, all your inconsistencies, all your fickleness. All the brokenness that you and I experience, all our apathy, all our numbness, our wounds, our regrets, our disappointments, God is bigger than all of that. He covers it, he forgives it, he swallows it up for all those who are connected to Jesus. God the Father looks upon us with a smiling face through Christ, emanating love and care, even in the midst of us ignoring him, avoiding him, rebelling against him. And the greatest evidence of this is that he has sent his son Jesus, who is the yes and amen to all that he, is, that he wants for us. And again, he, for those in Christ, has set his seal upon us and filled us with his spirit. So what's this look like? Well, you know, last weekend I was up in Chicago uh, teaching a seminar at a church and then preaching a few times at this church. And I was tired, I got sick, I nearly lost my voice. Then I came to back to a very busy week of school here, final week, wrapping things up. I was also slotted to teach men's Bible study on Wednesday night. And I was really just running on fumes by that point and with very limited prep time. My text was a great one, Hebrews 11. If you know Hebrews 11, it's this, we often call it the Hall of Fame. It's this list of all these people throughout the Old Testament who exercised faith. That's a great text. So that morning I'd been up since five, I've been leading and teaching and been with people from 6 a.m. straight. Finally dragged myself in here at 5 p.m. to try to finish up my prep and 
open my computer and because I'd gotten a new computers to things, I realized I lost all my prep notes. <laughs> so I did some more prep, getting ready for it, was tired, running on fumes. And then finally I just was, I just need to, I just got on my knees. Like the most natural human position to be in. I just got on my knees and I realized, God, this is, I can't do this. This is up to you. You need to show up. And once again, for the millionth time in my life, he answered prayer with a yes and amen. And even in the midst of, of teaching Bible study that night, and teaching Hebrews 11, in the midst of it, it hit me that this famous list of people from Hebrews 11, are, are they're there not because they were great men and women of faith, but because if, but what's really striking is if you look at their stories, of all these people who are committed for their faith, they are people who are incredibly and were incredibly, their lives were marked by failure and fickleness. You think of Abraham. Remember the story of Abraham? Where in under stress, you know, when they're in Egypt, he says to the Pharaoh, oh yeah, no, that's not my wife, that's my sister. You go and take her tonight. Moses, who when God calls him, he says, I can't do this, I can't do this, you need to send me a helper, I can't do this, right? And goes through all kinds of moments of, of anxiety as well. David, the great king who is a murderer and an adulterer. Samson, <laughs> do you know the story of Samson? And he's, he's listed as a person of faith in Hebrews 11, and, and along with all the other people in Judges who are really questionable people for the most part, Jephthah and others, Rahab, all these people are commended not because their lives were full of faithfulness, but precisely because God was faithful in the midst of their fickleness and their faithlessness. And even with a mustard seed of faith, these people trusted God and their greatness is not found in their success, but in the fact that they trusted God in the midst of life. And that was true for all those people in the Old Testament, and it's just as true for you today. And friends, this is good news. And this is why God has brought you here this morning, so that you might hear from him that in the midst of all that is going on in your life, whether it's trials that have come upon you or self-inflicted problems you've gotten yourself into, God looks upon you with a smiling face in a face of yes and amen and invites you to come and receive his seal. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.